Welcome to the Inkwell Podcast. My name is Link McElbany and I'm a Shiatsu practitioner from Melbourne, Victoria. On today's show, we have Con Margaritas. Con has been in private practice since 1992. Currently, he is a lecturer at the Australian Shiatsu College, teaching classical Namakoshi Shiatsu, men's health, and workplace health and safety. Previously, he lectured at the East West College for 14 years and at the Centre for Adult Education in Melbourne for 12 years. Con was actually my very first Shiatsu teacher, and since then, he's been a role model of mine that I deeply respect and admire. We are also joined once again by our wonderful co host, Mr. Scott Brisbane. Scott is currently practicing craniosacral therapy out of the Australian Shiatsu College in Brunswick, Victoria. He has studied and taught traditional Chinese medicine and acupuncture, as well as naturopathy and flower essences. He also has a weekly Drew Yoga class that he teaches and he explores various meditation techniques as part of his personal practice. And to lead us into the show today, we have Melbourne band Miso, who have recently reunited, which has brought a lot of excitement and joy to their fans. Uh, The music you'll hear on today's podcast is some of their older work from their first release. And if you're interested in hearing what they're up to these days, you can find them at soundcloud.com slash tuneintomiso. You can also find them on Facebook. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, we are back and this time we have Con Margaritas. Is that how you pronounce it? Or Margaritas. Yeah, Margaritas. That's the right way. Beautiful. Uh, we have him today and... Yeah, so we'll start by just getting to know you a little bit for our listeners. Um, whereabouts are you from? Where were you born? I was actually born in Carlton at the old Royal Women's Hospital in 63. So I started off, um, I grew up in Northcote. And then at the age of nine, we actually uh, moved out to Lara in the country, out near Geelong. And we had actually built... Um, an entire farm and sheds except the house um, and then started farming so that was quite a shock going from city out to the country at nine years of age were your parents uh, like laborers or uh pretty much so my my grandfather was a boiler maker so he did he worked with um the train network and my my essentially my dad was a laborer so my dad, my uncle and my grandfather got together and um, decided to go into business. So that's my mum and her sister and her partner. And over the course, we bought a block of land, or they bought a block of land. And during the week, there'd be welding happening at the back of my parents' place. My grandfather would come over and I'd spend hours welding from the age of nine or before nine, sort of seven, eight, nine, actually welding. So I got very tactile and hands-on working a lot with my grandfather. So I don't know how many years, that was probably over three, four years. And then every weekend we'd load up on top of a an old Holden on the station wagon. You'd load up these trusses and posts and whatever else we'd fabricated and take them down and put them up on the Saturday and then come back that night and just did the same for the next week so that was a big part of my life um, really even when I was very young actually I just worked after school that's uh, probably my main memory of my youth is just spending time out in the garden 
which big veggie gardeners, most Greeks had or still, some still have, and also doing a lot of welding and do, doing trades, starting to learn about trades at a very young age. So I don't know whether it got into my blood then or it was just a natural, I gravitated towards it, using my hands in different ways. Yeah, that would be super useful. I mean, that's something that's quite missing from the culture at the moment and our generation, my generation, and younger is is skills, mm. like hands-on practical skills from an early age. So, um, yeah, and so they, like the whole family was involved, but the block of land out there was for the entire family or was it for just your parents or how? My parents and my uncle and aunt and and their children. So we essentially built the farm and the house and we lived in a house, in a four-bedroom house with um, two families. Wow. For, I don't know, probably for about 10, 12 years or something, roughly. And um, then my aunt eventually bought another house and they moved away from the farm into Lara. But um, we were pretty much sharing a household for <laughs> sort of 12, 15, I grew up sharing household. You had one bedroom and two people in it or three people and that was it. Till what age was it? Um, I think just before I did well, what was HSC or now VCE, so probably I'm guessing year 11, somewhere around there. So I remember year 12 having my own room. I don't think it was much before then. So what's that, nine till about 17, 18? And was that because some of your older siblings had moved out or...? No, because my aunt and uncle actually moved oh, out, that's... bought the house. And so we had a house, we had room, a room each. So my brother and I got our own room, first time ever. And it's just that you and your brother were yeah. your own siblings? Yeah. yeah, so he's four years younger okay. and that's the only sibling I've got. And so, like, you're obviously getting the skills and trades and from my understanding, you have an engineering background. What did you do out of high school? Like, did you go straight to uni or into a trade or...? Essentially straight into engineering. Because I was, I had fairly good marks in sciences, I was quite strong in them, and I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I was tossing up a few different things. Engineering was one that I got exposed to a little bit. A friend was in charge of the Williamstown Dockyards, so I was ex considering naval architecture, and also one of his sons was a civil engineer. So I, who was involved more with construction. Mm. So that sort of was a, a route that I thought, oh, yeah, I sort of, I like construction. Mm -hmm. I, I like hands-on. Um, however, I didn't realise that engineering, you design things, you're not doing hands-on work. Mm. So I went straight into engineering and started practising doing design work. So I was in an office, number crunching essentially doing residential construction, um, office construction, a little bit of uh, factory as well, industrial type work. However, the majority of it was sitting in an office and I really liked, I'm very tactile, I like getting out on site, I like getting being involved in construction as an engineer, so doing construction type work and also troubleshooting when there were issues to resolve in residences that that was a very small part of the work. So, and at the time that I 
this must have been what, early, 87 I graduated, 1987, there was, the the stock market had just gone or was it was dropping or had come to a crash. And so there was a lot of design work, but there wasn't very much in construction. So construction was very, very quiet. So essentially it was going into design and I really struggled with that. And then in, I think it was about, Sick. Well, all through my time whilst I was engineering, uh, doing my degree, I was doing lots of professional development courses, doing involved with studying massage. I was doing yoga, and also questioning life at a probably a rather early age or earlier than most people get into it. And I was drawn to the healing arts, and in particular, one aspect was. I used to do work on, I, I just massaged my mother. I didn't know at the time, but when she'd get her monthly cycle, she'd get PMT and she got migraines from that. And I just instinctively used to put my hands on her and massage her and that used to give her relief. Hmm. So I, I kept doing that and found I liked massage or the aspect of massage. What I didn't like was just working on the symptoms because usually it's painful, the parts that are really tender. So I never got into it full-time as a profession. I was doing, I was working on family and friends. Uh, and then in, I think it was in 91, oh, late 90, I came across, uh, a friend was doing a course at the Augustine Centre and I picked up a brochure on shiatsu. And I I'd heard about it and I think I'd received one or two shiatsus. I didn't really know much about it. And I did a weekend introduction course to shiatsu with uh, Kathy Hunter, who was running at the time, she was running what was Shiatsu Australia and then became East West College. And an hour into it, I thought, this is what I want to do. It, it just melded together and meshed together all the different parts of our, our physical bodies, our energetic bodies, health, nutrition, emotions, physically what you do. There wasn't, everything was in relationship with each other. And for me, it just melded, it, it all became one. I saw this huge pot where everything's in relationship. There isn't anything that's separate. Mm. So that for me was just the gut feel of this is what I want to do without knowing how it was going to happen or I had no idea how it was going to happen. And So at this point you were still working in engineering? I was still engineering. I was contracting. So I worked for two years as an employee and then I started contracting. So I had probably about a year of contracting. So 87, 88, I was employed and then I began doing my own work and then I left paid employment and just started contracting. And then in 89, I went overseas for six months, which was an amazing, incredible experience, travelling through four months through Europe, Scandinavia, uh, touched on Eastern uh, Europe at the time, which was just starting to open up. And I essentially came back and enrolled 
did this course in December and decided this is what I wanted to do. So it was quite a quick shift. There was no consideration or thought process involved. It was just an instinctive decision of this is what I want to do. And the decision was easy, but dealing with the ramifications of that afterwards was very challenging. Because in, in Greek culture, you have God in the middle. You've got doctors on one hand and the engineers are on the other. So engineers are highly respected mm. in terms of Greek, in, uh, Greek culture. And for me, I didn't see that doing massage or what most people saw as massage or their understanding of shiatsu, which was negligible. <laughs> people had no idea. My family still don't, most still don't know what I do. Yeah. The majority, I'd say. <laughs> and so I did the course and essentially started next month. I think it was January 91. The course started and then I got married three weeks later. So all this happened in a whirlwind. I essentially came back, I think December, early December from overseas. I had just proposed my... Um, my girlfriend at the time flew over to Canada and joined me and I proposed to her at that time. So in the space of like six weeks, I'd gone from uh, being single to being engaged to being doing engineering to start studying shiatsu while I was engineering. So that was huge shift at that time in, in a few months. So it was quite a shift starting getting married and then also starting shiatsu, which is not a... I think it's a very challenging course in itself. It's not just the intellectual aspect of learning about a trade or learning about how to do a particular discipline. For me, it's, a, it's an art science that also a large... Probably the, the majority of it is, is inner work or our inner journey. So... For most of our culture, that's it's or for most for all people, it's challenging. It's a challenging pathway. Looking within, it's very easy, or much easier to look without. So, for me, the the journey of studying shiatsu and then the practice of it as a practitioner, I saw that the inner journey is so inextricably linked with it that to me, it's one and the same. Mm. So I always, I, as part of my work, that, that inner journey carries a large part of the, the healing process and the understanding of moving where a client is to move to where it is that they either desire to go or to heal themselves at whatever, at whatever level. So that's, and that's continued to this day. And is that in terms of, I mean, looking at what your experience is like giving a treatment and how that relates to your external life and your psychology and those kinds of things. Do you, are you deliberately or consciously working on particular things through shiatsu or is it more of a uh, being aware of things instead of developing your understanding? Probably both in that one is learning what I've learned through my own inner journey, that are things that I found useful that I can share with clients that they can then take away and go, here's a tool, practice this, see what happens. This, I found this useful or there's something else that I feel this is what will be useful for you. 
explore this and see what happens, see what you get out of it. So one is the experiential aspect, and then the other one is a learning about the the philosophy and practice of shiatsu, five elements, the energetics of empty, full, deficient excess, of learning about the duality of life with yin and yang and however the relationship of the earth and the cosmos and allowing is finding what is my experience been of these impulses that work through me and what what's happening within me so as i went through my inner journey going through initially i used to do lots of sports i was i was very i was highly competitive on the field not competitive where i had to win I was competitive because I enjoyed the practice or playing sports. That's I, I absolutely love training. I love playing sports. And it also gave me an insight into myself in that when I was at up until the age of 14, I was quite overweight between actually from the time we moved to the farm at Lara. So that's around the age from 10 to 14. Okay, so we have Mr. Scott Brisbane, as usual, has rejoined us in the studio. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon. <laughs> All of the above, wherever you are. Yeah. Um, so, Con, we were talking about your, uh, you were into sports and competition and things like that, but mm-hmm. uh, do you want to? Sure. So, one of the things that I found invaluable on an inner journey was I was very overweight between the ages of about 10 and 14. And in year nine or whatever that is now, class nine, form three, back last millennium, there was, I I decided to, or made a decision that I wanted to change how my body was. And so what I began doing was pushing myself through the different events, through running. And slowly what started happening was, A, I began losing weight and I started improving my cardiovascular and my fitness and getting better at sports and whatever it was that I was doing. So I found by the year's end where I was starting to come Initially, when I started in year nine, I was coming probably close to the last out of 160-odd people in the year. There were, I was coming almost last, and by the end of the year, I was ending up in the sort of late, mid, early teens, late teens. And what I saw in that was how much a decision and also the discipline of working and actually pushing yourself a little bit at a physical level. So... What I saw was that what we do at a physical level and also what we do within ourselves in terms of how we approach life, how we approach the different things that we're doing actually begins to make a difference. And so I sort of had this this starting to play along and began looking at health and physicality where I think I must have been about 11 or so, I refused to take medication which a doctor had administered and coming being someone who was quite introverted or I would consider myself 
very introverted and shy at the time. It was something that for me was, I'll look back and go, that was pretty radical to not accept something that someone in a position of of power or authority had given to me and I just refused to take it. Why? What was your... Oh, I still haven't worked it out to this day. So I don't know if it was my intuition, just something that just rejected the notion of taking pills and I don't even know what it was for at mm. that time and as I went through I began looking at or I was exposed to my grandmother used to utilize a lot of I'll say home remedies or remedies where you used food as medicine not that I was aware of it at the time um, so what I found was that the different things that she'd share with me and I put them into practice things like cutting up onion I used to get huge amounts of bruises and um, impacts from sports because of how gung-ho I was when I was playing that slicing onion putting it on top as a compress with a bit of salt worked incredibly well to draw out the bruising and so for me, I go, well, that makes sense. Rather than doing these hot and cold or, at that time, ice packs, it just didn't feel right. So that's the only thing I've got to go on. I still don't know why I did that other than my feeling. It just felt right to do certain things and it didn't feel right to do others. And so that became an important part as a stepping stone to beginning to understand healing. Not that I was, I wasn't sick at all. At the things that I had, what I began doing was, if I change this food or I change the way my body in terms of a particular discipline or exercise, I, I began using my body as an experiment to look at what's happening here. What actually changes if I cut this food out or if I do this exercise or strengthen this? So I'm sure at the time I began reading and was started getting influencing by different books, probably more on alternate health or healing, that were quite outside of mainstream, so very much outside of Western medicine or Western science. And I, quite, I resonated with it. To me, it made sense that there's always some things you can do. So getting back to the one with my mother where I began not only working on her physically through massaging her to deal with her migraines and headaches and her menstrual pain every time she had a cycle. What I began to do is just share with her foods, different, how different foods that I'd read and so I shared. So some things she found useful, some things she didn't. And similarly for myself, I found some things worked and some things didn't. And I kept applying that all the way through, especially after I graduated in Shiatsu, where food for me was a, a big part of understanding life or seeing how the energetics of food impact. And one thing in particular I found was I kept sharing things with clients and I found some clients had a shift and others nothing happened. So similar symptoms similar energetic patterning and I'm trying to work out so what is the difference here and where I 
came to, I'm going to paraphrase it, is looking at the power of the mind of seeing not only is someone, someone might be doing something a particular way, but what also is happening is they're running certain thoughts in their head, they're feeling certain things about things, they have certain emotions that are coming up and beliefs about when they do something. And what I found was the way someone approached something in terms of their belief system or what was underlying their belief system or what was actually behind any judgment they might have had on something. So an example I'll give is if we look at a block of chocolate where someone goes, has a judgment value on chocolate where they go, chocolate's bad, chocolate's good, chocolate's unhealthy, it's got sugar, it's got dairy. So there's beliefs about it. And then there's the way when someone consumes the chocolate, someone can consume the chocolate in a state of enjoyment. There can be satisfaction that they've satisfied what it was that they, they were drawn to the chocolate for. And also they could possibly, like some people feel guilty about it or they feel shame about it. And what I started seeing is the energetics of these emotional aspects I found far outweighed the energetics of having chocolate. So for someone to have chocolate and then feel guilty about it, had more that guilt had much more of an effect than the effect of the chocolate. Mm, this is the yum factor, you know, like you can eat absolute crap with absolute relish and metabolise it heaps better than um, eating something that is supposedly fantastically nourishing for you, but really going, uh, yeah, I know this is meant to be good for me, but it's not happening. As far as the yum factor is concerned, yum, yum factor with food is really important. So it's not satisfying. If, yeah. if we do not get our needs met, we'll then do the same thing again and again and usually we do the same thing harder and we repeat those patterns. So at an extreme level, to me, that's the aspect of addiction. If our needs are not met, then it's what we'll do is we keep reaching out into the world, physically, mentally, emotionally, through relationships, through food, work, money, doesn't matter what it is. And we will keep pushing because we feel that unconscious impulse that's inside. And we know we have a want, and then we have to discriminate through our worth element, the spleen and stomach, of discriminate this thing that I'm reaching out for, does this satisfy this need inside? And if it does, then we satisfy it. It does the yum factor. And then we no longer have the need to unconsciously go for, to try and satisfy that again, because we've been met temporarily, our needs have been met at that point. So we don't have to do it anymore. If we don't get satisfied, then we keep reaching out for more and more. Okay. This never stops. Well, yeah, because I've been experiencing this heaps recently. Like, I'm not sure if you're aware, I came back from India with some digestive uh, troubles and had a extremely strict diet for quite some time. Um, and since then have been really trying to retrain my brain to not analyze and stress out and think of the bad aspects of all the food that I'm eating. And um, But one thing that I've had for most of my life 
is quite a massive sugar addiction. Like, I mean, you know, I was the, it was my sugar dealer was exposed to me when I was a little kid and, and I, I, um, I bought frequently and, um, yeah, so recently I've been looking at this thing where, especially late at night, I guess, when I'm tired and, and that kind of thing, I'll start eating some sugar and I'll just compulsively eat until I'm ill, until I can't justify eating anymore because it's having such a massive effect on me. And I watch myself do it and I can see myself do it and and I can use discipline to stop it. I can override it. I can make good choices. Um, but... But when you're saying that thing about the satisfied, like why, like as I'm eating them, sometimes I'm enjoying the experience of it, but sometimes I'm not. And yeah, I'm just wondering how, what, are there any techniques or anything to, to consider to, uh, to actually satisfy myself in that situation? Or yeah, I don't know. With regards to food, one of the things that I learnt that one of my teachers shared with me is everything in moderation. Including moderation. Even excess. <laughs> so unless at some point we do this excess, we don't define the boundaries. That, that's how we learn about this physical reality. If we're a spiritual being in a physical body, we're coming here and we're experiencing these physical laws and universal laws yeah. But we don't know what the laws are yet. Yeah. We're just experiencing consequences, cause and effect. So as a rather than rules about food, a, a principle that I found useful is whatever you you whatever you consume, whatever comes in, enjoy it. Observe the judgment value so you become neutral and you become a neutral observer of self observe when you have i don't know why we we're on chocolate at the moment observe chocolate or observe the sugar or observe whatever the food stuff is whether it's alcohol beer whether it's anger whether it's sadness observe what it is that you're experiencing neutrally which means you, it's like you flick through the TV stations and you go, okay, you're watching this movie, this is a scary movie, you're watching, okay, this is a drama and this is a, a love comedy and this is a horror. They're invoking different things in us. So as we're consuming or experiencing what we're experiencing, we observe ourselves neutrally and observe what our reaction is or the judgment values, the beliefs, that are coming out. And in that, we begin to bring them to light. We bring the, the unconsciousness, or what appears unconscious, to the level of consciousness. So as a, as a stepping stone or a starting point or an ongoing one, through that process, we become observers and then we bring consciousness to whatever it is that we're doing. So we begin to pay attention to, like the nuances you said before about, I have some sugar and I like it, then I have some other sugar and it's not, it's not an enjoyable experience. So it's, something's changed in that. You're still consuming the sugar. But something within has shifted. And it's, it's us 
individually that have the capacity to reflect on what we're doing, where we are, to bring awareness and consciousness to that experience. So that same thing I'd apply to everything in life. Mm. doesn't matter. Well, it's interesting. Uh, when I went to the ashram earlier in the year, my friend uh, Jeremy, his one piece of advice was um, focus on what's real. And so, and there's this other sentence that keeps on popping up into my head, which is uh, be honest about or focus on where I'm actually at. So in terms of meditation or whatever, like starting with not what I'm assuming or my, the ideal version of, of who I am. And so with this food thing, like you're right, I've got a whole bunch of food mantras that I play, like I'm slightly lactose intolerant and I'm this and I'm that. Um, but yeah, if I was to just every time just blank slate and eat it again, because I don't know how much my gut community has changed in the last day, week, month. Like maybe now I'm not lactose intolerant, you know, and so... Uh, yeah, I think that's going to be really useful to just keep get, try to be as neutral as possible and then afterwards see what happens rather than kind of assume and plan <laughs> what's going to happen. Because those mantras you're talking about are influencing every single thing that we're doing. Mm. So we're talking about it in relationship to food. However, the same is applying in relationship to life because we're all in relationship to life with other people, mm. with nature, with the earth. Mm, it's a meditation philosophy too, you know, like uh, the, the process of meditation is the process of ob observation of yourself. And uh, you don't have to be sitting cross-legged on the floor to be meditating, to be observing yourself. So the process of meditation is really the process of teaching yourself to be observant of the way you are. So if the way you are is diving for the sugar or the chocolate, then the idea is to have your observer switched on so as you can actually spot what's actually going on, what's happening to the tension in your body when that's happening, what's happening to the thoughts in your head when that's happening, what's happening to your unconscious movements. You know, how do you pick the chocolate up? How do you put it in your mouth? How do you eat the chocolate? You know, all of these things, you know, like it's worthwhile just slightly stepping back into the observer and meditating on it. And it's interesting because that almost seems like work. I remember when I first, say, found out about the concept of you don't necessarily want to eat or watch TV or do something else while you eat. Um, and that idea was really confronting and, and kind of scary at the time because I'm like, but I like to do 13 things at once. Like, you know, that, that sounds very difficult. But the more um, I practice discipline or the more I, I observe and try to be in this meditative state, the more I realize it's just generally more enjoyable. And there's so much interesting things going on all the time that I just miss out if I'm not remaining aware of them and, and staying, you know, present. So, yeah, like... It's good for, to remind myself that it's it's more fun and it's it's uh, yeah more interesting to do these things rather than it's some kind of like arduous task that I need to do. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the meditation state, you know, like I think the meditation thing, uh, the word itself can kind of carry some weight about discipline and stuff like that, but it it really is a teacher for you to actually pull back 
become the observer and start to actually watch how you behave, how you talk, how you move, how you feel, how you are, yeah, and you watch it, observe it and learn about yourself. It's a big world. I haven't done this for ages. Sea siren sea. Sea siren sea. All the people in the ambulance emergency are looking for you, but you're talking to me. Sea siren sea. Sea siren sea. All the people in the ambulance emergency are looking for you, but you're talking to me. Sea siren sea. Sea siren sea. Siren Sea All the people in the hospital emergency are looking for you but you're talking to me Sea Shirley Sea Siren Sea So just that aspect of in in doing that meditation or mindfulness, what it means is that the reality that's out there that we're seeing, that we're actually projecting our perception onto, is just that. It's our perception of the reality, usually, that's happening out there. We're not actually observing reality neutrally. We're observing a reality, and then we take it that that person did this or this person cut me off or that's unfair or we put some value judgment on that rather than seeing that this external reality is like a mirror that's reflecting what's within us at the at an unconscious level that's being projected out by us onto the reality that's Mm. happening so i know but don't you hate that like you know I, i agree with you but, like, I, I kind of don't like it as well at the same time. Oh, I never said I liked it. <laughs> I haven't reached that level where I, I still see my dislikes and my value judgments on, you know, he shouldn't cut me off or I shouldn't be eating this or whatever the shoulds are or yeah. the, the value of judgment that gets placed upon life as we go along. You know, the client should be listening to what I tell them. That's all my value. It's not the client's issue. If that is mine, 
then that's mine. So taking ownership of it is a is a big step. It's maybe we do it in stepping stones or there's there's little steps along the way. Sometimes maybe we have experiences that collapse quite a number of our belief structures and then we become a bit more open and maybe less judgmental about things. So I, as I've gone on, I'd go, I think that process is getting a little easier. It's still hard, <laughs> relatively. There's actually a bit more space there, I find. And so the challenges that it, w- it brought up are just different. Maybe it's just over time you notice differences. Um, I think it's Osho who writes about, in, in one of his uh, dissertations, he, talks about, he gives this story about two monks. So there's two new monks that have gone into a monastery. They both smoke. And they're trying to work out, they're scared of asking the senior monk about, is it okay if we smoke? So they've gone ages without smoking. And they've both got to the point where they go, I've had enough. I have to find out if I'm allowed to smoke. So they tee up a time, one after the other, to go see the senior monk. So the first person, the first junior monk, goes up to the senior monk and asks him, is it okay if I smoke whilst meditating? And the senior monk goes, absolutely not. It is forbidden. You are not allowed to smoke whilst you're meditating. So he stands up, goes out, and then eventually the other guy comes in. The next junior monk comes in and asks, and he goes, is, is it okay to meditate whilst I am smoking? And he goes, absolutely. And so most people, when they hear that, they go, so what's the difference? One is you're, you're meditating and then you do this smoking. But the other one is whilst you're doing the smoking, you're meditating and mindful of the smoking. And so that little subtle difference I find extraordinarily powerful in that there's just this little shift where meditation means so much or there are beliefs about what it is you're meant to be meditating cross-legged on a mountaintop eight hours a day and for me it's actually how do I bring this into my life today and how do I share this with clients so that I become a mirror for them so they get to see themselves rather than my ambiguities or my confusion how what is it that i can do to reflect back to them and to become like a clear mirror so that they actually get to see themselves so i can reflect something back to them so going back to this earlier part about the the inner journey for me that feels a very very important i don't know if it's just a part or a process of getting to see yourself so that you get to see ah this is the reality that I'm or what I'm projecting onto reality at this moment so over time you get to see yourself yeah because I find it definitely works the way with my client I'll be like oh you know uh, that person they just constantly worrying about things like I can't believe they spent this whole last two weeks worrying about this silly trivial thing and to me it seems so silly and funny while I'm talking to them and they're explaining it to me and then I go home and I'm like man I'm doing that all the time uh, with you know x y and z so many trivial things so 
yeah, I guess it's a two-way mirror or a, what is it? You know, it is a two-way mirror. mirror, I should yeah. say. Mm, so what do you do? What do I do? To make yourself that clear mirror. I practice bringing presence to whatever it is that I'm doing. So whilst I'm here having an interview being conducted, that also I'm simultaneously aware of what's coming up. Are there fears of I'm not going to sound good? Are there fears of I don't know what to talk about? Whatever comes up, I'm able to simultaneously hold this space. So one is holding space, and maybe I'm, if I'm not elaborating too much, it's holding the space, it's being aware of what's happening on the outside world, it's participating in that, and still being mindful of, of my body, of my breath, what thoughts, if any, are coming through my head at a particular time. And then if something, a reaction comes up, is observing that that reaction is mine, is taking ownership of that reaction. And then looking at, if the critical me is going, I shouldn't be doing that, is observing myself, judging myself. Yeah, yeah, you're a good little Buddhist, actually. I, I was wondering what uh, practices uh, you do as far as um, your own private spiritual world, because um, I've been listening to a lot of uh, Buddhist tapes from a, from a, a website that I've been downloading, um, audiodharma.org, for those that are interested. And um, so my, my uh, learning, as far as Buddhism is concerned, has only just started. So, you know, like I found myself actually Wikipediaing Buddha himself. He was one seriously intense dude, actually. But um, what's your practice, Con? My practice? My practice in terms of, at a physical level, what, what I do would be, and this is at different times, it's, it shifts. So I'm probably very fluid in the things that I do. So going for a walk, walking early in the mornings, and observing what's happening around and observing my thoughts. If I go somewhere and meditate, usually within nature, or sometimes I'm able to get down to the river, Yarra River, and at that time of the day, I find early in the morning, there's, you get to see nature, you get to see a stillness of nature. And also because most people are sleeping, <laughs> most people's conscious minds is actually asleep at that time. And I find it's a time, it's, it's powerful wherever you are within nature, that that allows me to see more of myself because the thoughts that come up are arising not from other human beings, there's only nature. So for me, I'd consider nature neutral. There isn't positive or negative within the natural world. Things that, or aspects of morality that we put on, you know, this is right, that's wrong. This line shouldn't be killing that one. This tree shouldn't be poisoning the other tree with its root system whatever we have lots of values on nature mm, that's a cool tree though yeah <laughs> it shouldn't be raining 
or it's sunny, you know, the weather's good now. Yeah. Yesterday was shit because it was raining and it was wet and it was windy and it's like... So this is another one where it's easier to do in nature, just like it's easier to do on a mountaintop to go meditate because you have less reflections coming from human beings. Mm. You see less of yourself because you don't have that mirror. And what you get reflected is sort of a little bit more, not subtle, it's not as focused. So it's, it's in a way that your nervous system can process what's coming up. And there's space, there's more space between thoughts, I find, within nature. So taking that practice then into life, into how I'm feeling, why am I observing whatever feelings, emotions come up, observing, am I carrying anything with my partner? Am I carrying anything with my son? What got said yesterday? What is there that I'm still carrying? So it's bringing it to that whatever the stuff that I've been holding on to, that I'm still holding on to, and having kindness for self. Where I used to, I'd go, I think I became a Zen master first at bashing myself up. I think I mastered that, I, per, I perfected that. And, and in that I saw, this was the paradox of life, that I thought I was on a spiritual journey, yet here I am. And I go, where's the self-love? Where's the love of self? Not in an egotistical way, in the way of, the way I treat myself is the way the world treats me, or the way I perceive myself. So I go, if this is happening out there, or this is the way I'm treating myself, is it any wonder that I'm, I keep seeing this reality that's coming back to me? So it's continually seeing those things and observing the things that I've been carrying with, say, st stuff with parents. Um, over the last probably 15 years, I've spent a lot more time with my father. And this, I think it's Eckhart Tolle said, talks about, you know, if you consider yourself enlightened, go spend a month with your parents, go live with your parents. And, and in that, I've seen where I've spent a lot more time with my parents as they've gotten older, and I've been fortunate they're, they're still around, that I've been able to heal a lot of these wounds that I was carrying about judgments and my perception of events. So in this process of what I do, I find the one of keep coming back to the present moment, to breath, to what's happening and what's, what story am I making up about this moment? Why am I making up a story because someone looked at me a particular way or someone was abrupt with me serving and I go, and this story comes up and then I allow that to change my state of being. So I'm giving this story that I'm making up more power or the power to determine how I feel. And also the other one is in terms of like feeling down, that's been one where I'll go, the, the word depression to me is not a, a clinical one. To me, it's a state of being. It's, it's how we're being coping or dealing with life and how we're feeling as an expression. And the flip to that, our society has, if someone's negative, you just flip the positive over so that a minus and a plus 
balance out and it becomes neutral. And to me, I go, hold on, that doesn't, that's, that does not feel right. Because in that I go, I can be positive on everything. However, am I acknowledging what it is that I'm feeling? So in the feeling down, what I've found is I'm able to stay with that process longer. So I don't try to escape. So whatever it is that I'm experiencing, the discomfort of not having enough money, the discomfort on I'm feeling a little bit overweight or whatever, the, the discomfort on something may not be going how I'd like it to within a relationship, then what I find I do is I stay with that feeling without becoming addicted to it and nourishing in it the addiction. I bring attention to it and acknowledge what it is that I'm feeling, surrender to what it is that I'm feeling without trying to escape from it. What I found is the escaping of the present moment creates stress. So at a really simple level, the the nervous system is very, very simple. It has the sympathetic nervous system, which is that aspect of flight or fight or a stress response. And then we have the parasympathetic, which is sort of like a balancer that is more involved with, instead of this stress response, the parasympathetic is one that calms, it heals, it nurtures and looks after the body. So we're, if we're operating in this stress response where we want to escape the present moment, until we come to this present moment, which is where we can do, I believe we do our own healing, we're in this flight or fight or arousal state. And in this state, there's no healing. And a lot of what we see in our culture is a lot of autoimmune uh, diseases, chronic illnesses. There are more and more conditions where people have been operating at this altered state, I'll say, of stress. I don't believe it's our natural state to be in all the time. That until this the, a client learns to self-regulate, so they can come with me or come and have a treatment, and if they're able to do things and incorporate simple things that begin discharging or begin relaxation, whatever word you want to use, drop out of that deep conscious, beta conscious thinking, thinking, stressing, that that allows them, we start bringing in some space where the client begins to be involved in their own healing. So coming back to the question that you asked. What was the question? What do I do as disciplines? (laughs) Was that correct? <laughs> is is actually bringing that, k- keep reflecting reality back to me, that and and seeing and observing what is invoking in me, because there's there's always something. I like the bit about staying with feelings. Um, recently, I've uh, kind of decided that I will stay with difficult feelings and um, be more uh, open to the world about, I guess, uh, the rawness of those feelings. And um, those feelings often 
uh, in the body. So it means I'm staying with my body more. It means I'm staying with the feelings more. And it feels more honest. It feels like you're... you're um, your front to the world is no longer a front. Your front to the world is you now, you know, like it's kind of a different space, you know, like uh, I would not have necessarily called myself a dishonest person before I started this process, but these are some of the really deep, 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 deep feelings. And... Uh, I think that, you know, like I've been pretty used to handling them in a way of pushing them away and say, oh, I'll deal with them at another time and, and sort of kind of fragmenting or compartmentalising when I would deal with them. Whereas now it's like um, it's front and centre. I think it's got a lot to do with age almost that, you know, like I can't be bothered actually hanging around uh, for this drip feeding of healing to occur to some of this deep stuff. Let's give it to me now and give it to me hard and let's go straight through and see how long it goes for because, uh, yeah, I kind of know that it's a process. But um, it's an interesting process to not be compartmentalising, not be pushing away and to kind of have this rawness right there all the time, virtually, all the time. Yeah, it's an interesting process. So... I can't remember who it was. There was one place where someone was talking about and he spoke about brutal honesty. And and what I saw in that, I go, oh, yeah, I'm pretty honest. When I, when I was looking at reflecting on things, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable going in, looking at my discomforts. What I found was I, can, I was comfortable there, but I wasn't yet comfortable going in to a, a deeper level and again, I'm going to say, I think age does come into this as well as you, as you get older. And what I found at the moment through different disciplines of having spent a number of years doing yoga, or as in a 10-year, I seem to do a lot of things in 10-year blocks, where I, I committed 10 years to doing yoga almost daily, I then spent had a 10-year block where I did Tai Chi daily for just 10, 11 years. And then I had a 10-year block where I daily went for meditations down to the river. So there was an hour walk, a meditation. And as I'd been exploring the last, I'll say the last 10 years of, so yes, I can do a discipline or I can do a practice what is i it's like i wanted to distill the essence of the things that i've learned and also within the shiatsu practice my clinic where i've learned a lot of things that aren't in books i couldn't possibly explain what happens i've been very fortunate and blessed that i can be a pre, i can be a present observer to what the client is experiencing and in that, I find I don't project my stuff onto them. Whatever they're experiencing is okay. I'm not uncomfortable in someone being angry or sad or feeling hard done by. And I used to th think I was cold-hearted. And what I've learnt over time is that I'm able to stay in whatever the discomfort is. So whether it's my discomfort, 
whether it's another person's discomfort. I can actually hold the space, which is all I feel I actually do within my clinic anyway, is actually hold the space that makes it open for the client to experience whatever it is that they need for healing. And there's no thinking processes in this. It's, it's, it's doing that ongoing practice of the mindfulness and bringing in whatever practices or things that I've learned through the different experiences that I've had. So it's sort of like bringing the things in that I, distilling it down to an essence and going, so what's really important about this practice or that practice or what, what has this brought to me, what has that brought to me? And going, so what was it at the level of essence that allowed a shift to take place? And so that discomfort that comes up in in everyday life is almost like the flip to that is getting comfortable with this is what reality has brought to you then surrender to it i'm still learning that <laughs> well in relation to being a practitioner uh recently i've i've been a bit flat for the last sort of week or so and i noticed that with clients um there's this idea of i guess rapport building and particularly uh initially when they walk in and even with clients that I've been seeing for a while. But I'll notice sometimes, like, the client will come in and I'll be, you know, getting my notes out or I'll be, you know, correcting the space or whatever, and I kind of won't really connect with them properly or really be paying them so much attention because I'm like, I'm just going to get this stuff done and then I can lock in. Um and then I just I was thinking about it the other day. I'm like, I'm not sure how comfortable this is making them feel like. Is it more important for me to be human and kind of accommodating right from the get-go to, to create that connection and then do the things sort of after that? Um, but also I found myself when I've been in this flatter state just being a little bit apathetic or not, not really caring about the the drama of their experience and I know in some ways that's kind of cool like there's an equanimity behind just not uh, indulging in other people's drama but also they, they just felt like there's a little bit of a coldness or a little bit of a disconnection that I was that I was doing and I think I do that in general with with people in my life that I, I don't really want to experience their suffering so I kind of just just separate myself from them even though I'm not even sure that that's really possible um yeah can you guys comment on on that kind of part of things in what you've said two things have come up so one is where you said about accommodating them Mm. so for me that one starts coming into possibly personal expectations so i would ask what do you mean by accommodating Mm. and the other one is the aspect of doing as opposed to being that we can do we can be and still do things we've been educated to actually the doing is the important if you take a certain action you'll get an outcome if you do all this marketing and do all this you'll build up a particular business and what i found in that is you being you don't have to make the connection with clients the being 
opens it up to the possibility of it happening. I can't make it happen. I can I can do what I call nice and be entertaining and ask questions and connect and ask them how family is. That I can do. The other one is where is that coming from? Is that coming from my need to feel connected with the client? Or can I also be comfortable and be in my space and allow that connection like a you know the two terminals to the polarity of a battery to actually meet can i create receptivity and the client comes towards me rather than me having to move and make that connection so i'm not sure if they're the things if if i'm well going by, into what you were asking this is a common thing of me taking responsibility for all aspects of my relationships so that yeah it's it's i have to be the one who if yeah who makes the connection so already you've addressed a massive part of it which is that it's <laughs> there's two to tango and and that um but yeah i guess also this uh this disconnection or this feeling of uh yeah separateness or I don't know, have you experienced a similar thing at all with people or do you not really? As in with clients or you mean in relationship, feeling a space, a separateness? I'd say with clients and people in general in terms of this, yeah, like it's, I bring it back to this idea of that I don't I don't want to take on other people's shit or I don't want to uh, energetically feel crap. It's the yeah. It's what's the difference between like sympathy and empathy, and where's that balance between feeling and being with somebody, uh, and then what is there a pathological version of that where you're kind of like you're taking you're experiencing it too much, like uh, yeah. So the difference when you said those two words, sympathy and empathy, mm. for me the difference is that being empathic allows you as the native american indians would say to walk in the moccasins of another person so being empathetic means as a human being i can use my sense perception to experience what another human being is suffering or going through that what what their internal experience is i don't have to experience it i can be in their presence and feel what it is they're going through. And the aspect of empathy is being able to do that without wanting to change it, without putting a value judgment and go, oh, life's really unfair, they, they shouldn't be, this shouldn't be happening. So you empath, empath, empathy for me is that aspect of neutrality. You can meet the person where they are and there's no transference of, judgment or value on what their experience is and you don't want to change it so there's an acceptance of what they're going through and then the flip to that is with sympathy is is feeling what the other person's feeling usually it invokes something in you as a reaction and you want to change it because you're uncomfortable and you've there's so there's either discomfort in that there's your own pain that you're seeing in another person but it's being invoked in you 
and you want the current situation to change from how it is. So sympathy is experiencing something and going, this shouldn't be happening, this is unfair, and you want it to go away. So that's where I see a huge difference between sympathy, which is very subjective, whereas empathy, we've still, we're holding our centre, you're holding your, the space, you're able to meet the other person, and even if it is invoking something in you that you're uncomfortable, you can stay with it. You're not trying to change it. So similar to what Scott was saying before. Yeah, and I think it's a really good example. Of it. But I do have a question um, with regards to that space or that distance that you feel uh, between yourself and the client. What do you feel like when that is happening? Uh I think I'd relate it to maybe being tired and being like uh, somewhat apathetic to, uh, yeah, like trying to think of how it would work. Like, just imagine, imagine it's kind of happening, not necessarily right now, but mm. just imagine what 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 are the feelings that actually are occurring in you when when that actually happens. Yeah, again, all I can really bring it back is to this feeling of being tight and and being like, I don't have the energy right now to <laughs> to pretend. <laughs> to pretend. Okay. Yeah, I don't have the, the energy to to create the facial expression that shows you that I'm uh, I'm not a sociopath and that your experience is affecting my experience. I think that's probably is accurate as I can get it because I guess I have had this long standing um, idea that uh, if somebody's in pain I should experience pain with them otherwise I'm being heartless and cruel or something Um, but that's pretty silly (laughs) already when I'm thinking about it and does the does this distance that you're feeling uh, is it um uh, problematic for the connection that you might want to make. Yeah, because, and I guess it is hard, like I was suggesting before, to separate my perceived needs of this person liking me, this person thinking I'm a good therapist, this person booking in again, this person feeling like I've connected with them. I think there's a whole bunch of these uh, insecurities or, or uh, thought uh, th- habitual thought patterns that... Um, that are around this idea of I need to be a certain thing or I need to behave a certain way to be accepted by this person. And that's so important because if this person doesn't accept me, um, I'm going to lose things. I'm going to, yeah, they won't give me things. Yeah, I think it's got a lot to do with that. Can I paraphrase if you had finished? So what one of the things that I heard in what you said was that you don't, I'm paraphrasing what you'd said, so I'm putting it in my own words, is that you don't have the energy to pretend to be someone that you're not feeling like being at the moment. Mm. So you don't want to do something. There's an expectation and you don't want to do the expectation at the moment. Yeah. And I'm assuming that expectation is there on their behalf. I have no idea. (laughs) Yeah, it's your own expectation. So it's actually our own. It keeps coming back to... 
the me. Well, yeah, I'll just quickly before I go in my car, I'll just say that I've been playing with this idea of uh, there's a friend of mine who I would often argue with in my head and there's a Street Fighter character called Akuma who's like the bad guy in, in Street Fighter and um, and when I'd argue with him in my head, I would I would label him Akuma, you know, and then I, I would also in my head have Akuma take off my friend's face and underneath it is my face and I'm, I'm like, it's bloody me. Like I have to remind myself whenever I'm creating these expectations that it, it's literally me wearing all these other people's masks because um, then I can hopefully let it go a little bit. That's a tough space link, you know, like, you know, like uh, you're arguing with Akuma and your friend, you put Akuma on your friend's face, then he takes the mask off and it's you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, that's a mindfuck of huge dimensions. <laughs> it's like the psychotherapy version of Scooby-Doo or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should not take that to your psychotherapist. <laughs> well, at a simple level, that's the aspect of mirroring. No, it was beautiful. That was because that's what it is that's these are great stories and not to devalue the story because the stories are valuable in our life whether it's mythological stories that are part of our evolution or even our individual stories about what happens when you're a practitioner or life these are all important stories eventually the stories collapse because we go you know what i don't like that story anymore that's a boring story so just like movies that have, you know, these summer movies, they do multiple endings. Yeah. We go, I can change the story now. Or I can change the internal dream I'm having. Or we actually can change these. And once you realise that, you go, oh, you're allowed to do that? Yeah. And it sh- I find it shifts things. Then it's easy. It's easier because we don't have to do hard. Because if you've learned to do hard, then hard's the way you do it. Once you realise that you don't have to do hard, then you realise hard's hard work. I can't do hard anymore. Keep running away Turn everything 
everything to dust up nicely this is my knee <laughs> yeah yeah you, you do you keep on doing your knees you know is that kind of like symbolic i don't know this one, <laughs> oh it's symbolic of something i don't know what not of. growing up <laughs> not growing up i don't know yeah yeah it has been these have been big ones lately mm. it's funny because it's been okay with shiatsu on the floor the working mm. that hasn't been a huge issue or but with these last two, as in this one, geez, that was five years ago. Yeah, you did a bad one. I remember it. I strained the, um, yeah, lateral, the lateral ligament. Mm. Whereas this one, I think I pinched the meniscus. Were you playing soccer again? No. Oh. I was squatting on the ground, not doing squats. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to get the rabbits out of their hutch. And I just overreached while I was on my knee. And I, I must have just twisted it a bit, rotated and it... Um, I'm not sure. That was it. And then I felt my knee lock and I sort of jumped out of that position. And um, You've got rabbits. Yes. Well, uh, there are rabbits in our backyard. There are. These are pet, <laughs> these are pet rabbits. Yeah, yeah, they're white, are they? No, one's black okay. and the other one's caramel flavour. Caramel <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, because Anthony's been going on about car- caramelised onion rabbits. This yeah, is a, yeah, a famous yeah, yeah, yeah. rabbit stew. I, I was thinking of the, you know, like when you were talking about putting onions on your wounds, um, that, you know, like, uh, yes, that's probably better than the pills that were being offered, but probably smellier. I was single at the time. It didn't matter. <laughs> it actually is a note because as soon as they go soft, you piff them. Yeah. So, you know what? I never noticed the smell. Well, I'd never actually um, heard it before, you know, like, and I was thinking that, you know, like as a kind of like a, ta- a trained naturopath that I should have heard that putting onions on your wound was good. And I, and I might have, but it, like it was so far in the background that it completely disappeared. Yeah. Mm. And it works and it's good. Oh, incredible. Yeah, with some salt. If you put the salt on, it draws it out much quicker. Yeah, you you kind of put the salt on the surface of the skin and then the onion on top of that. So usually I'll put the salt on the onion and then apply it mm. topically. 
And in fact, that's a really good reminder for me to do it now, when I get back home, that is. So this is for bruising and for stagnant blood? Swelling, yeah, it'll help with stagnant blood, swelling as well. So it'll draw the heat, so it'll, it'll draw out the heat from the joint as well. It's like when I like to tell the story of when Ramdas was asked about, you know, how, how did he come to be this Hindu teacher with his beads and robes and, you know, chanting Ram Ram and things like that when he was brought up Jewish, you know, come on. Um, what about your Jewish tradition? And I too was brought up Jewish. Weren't you bar mitzvah? He was, I was, and so forth, you know, and... And he's replied, he said, there's a lot of really deep and beautiful things in the Jewish tradition. It wasn't there in my upbringing, but now I know about it. The Kabbalah and the Jewish mystical tradition of the Hasids and all these beautiful practices. He said, so I very deeply respect it. He said, but, but remember, he said, I'm only Jewish on my parents' side. <laughs> and it's a very witty remark. But there's also a profound truth in it because who you are is not limited by your parents or your personal history or the particular, you know, race or orientation or whatever. That's something that has to be honored in you. But it, who were you? What is that spirit that was born into this incarnation before you got issued this particular body? Who are you really? underneath all of that. And in India, when you meet someone, you you know, the greeting, you put your hands together and say namaste, instead of shaking hands, it's this. Shaking hands is like I don't have a weapon, you can see. Um, in namaste, it's I honor the divine in you. I see that spark of the divine. I see who you really are beneath, you know, your clothes and that body that you've taken for this particular incarnation dance. I see who you really are, and then you get bowed back to. And it's a very wonderful greeting. So who are we really? Well, that's it for today's episode. And once again, that was Mr. Jack Cornfield. If you'd like to hear more of his talks and presentations, I recommend the podcast, The Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour, which you can find at the Be Here Now Network, which is at beherenownetwork.com. I also recommend checking out Krishna Das and Tara Brach via the same website as they are two excellent speakers as well. Con Margaritas offers shiatsu, lomi lomi, remedial massage and ear candling services. Currently, he practices out of two clinics, one in Fitzroy and the other in Doncaster. So if you'd like to make an appointment with Con, you can contact him via phone on 0419-007-445 or via email, which is shiatsuman at optusnet.com.au. For more information, you can visit his website, www.shiatsuhealing.com.au. In the past, Con has also offered private teachings and workshops. So if you're interested in that, you can get in contact and see what's on offer. Scott Brisbane offers acupuncture and craniosacral therapy out of his clinic in Brunswick and Mitcham. He also offers workshops from time to time, the latest one being craniosacral and energy work. So if you're interested in that, you can get in contact and find out what's on offer. So if you'd like more information, you can contact him on 0409 599 477 
or by email, which is scottwbrisbane at gmail.com. Scott's Drew Yoga classes on weekly at the Shiatsu College, so if you're interested in that, you can get in contact to find out the days and times. The acoustic guitar music you've heard throughout was actually my dad, Stuart McKelvin, and this outro music you're hearing right now is the Melbourne band Miso. If you'd like to hear more of Miso's music, you can go to soundcloud.com slash tune into Miso. That's T-U-N-E-I-N-T-O-M-I-S-O. And you can also find them on Facebook. If you're interested in being a guest on the show yourself, please get in contact. Or if you know a teacher or a practitioner that you think would be a really interesting guest, uh, the kind of teacher you've always wanted to hang out with after class, but perhaps never got the chance to, uh, send them our way and, and you can hang out with them via the magic of cyberspace. So keep checking out www.inkalot.net for more episodes. And remember, you can subscribe via iTunes or a podcast app from an Android phone. My preference is Podcast Addict. I think it's a great app. And if you'd like to support the show, you can give us a rating on iTunes. That's always very helpful. Or you can just promote the show via Facebook or any other social media or just put them on a USB and hand them to a friend, however you like, just to spread the word. If you have any interest in becoming a Shiatsu therapist or just want to find out what it's all about, head on down to 103 Evans Street, Brunswick and say hello to the staff there. Uh, Jenny and Marie who run the college are just wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, they'll be more than happy to tell you all about it and you'll also find a range of other workshops and classes available there, as well as clinic spaces that can be rented if you're a practitioner. For more information, go to www.australianshiatsucollege.com.au. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Please visit www.inkalot.net for more episodes. Have a lovely day. Hope you join us again soon.